When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our cruel and unrelenting enemy leaves us no choice but a brave resistance, or the most abject submission. This is all we can expect. We have therefore to resolve to conquer or die. Our own country's honor all call upon us for a vigorous and manly exertion, and if we now shamefully fail, we shall become infamous to the whole world. Let us therefore rely upon the goodness of the cause and the aid of the supreme being in whose hands victory is, to animate and encourage us to great and noble actions. The eyes of all our countrymen are now upon us, and we shall have their blessings and praises, if happily we are the instruments of saving them from the tyranny meditated against them. Let us therefore animate and encourage one another, and show the entire world that a free man contending for liberty on his own ground is superior to any slavish mercenary on earth. These were George Washington's general orders to the soldiers of the Continental Army under his command on the 2nd of July, 1776, the same day that, in Philadelphia, the Second Continental Congress voted unanimously to approve the Declaration of Independence. Before we get to how we got to this point, though, let me bid you a warm welcome to this, the third episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your humble host, Jerry Landry. If you'll remember from the last episode, the Proclamation of 1763 had sought to restrain the British colonists along the eastern coast of North America from moving further westward in order to avoid conflict with Native Americans on the other side of the Appalachian Mountains. This would not be the last attempt by the British government to restrain and control the colonists in the post-French and Indian War world, not by a long shot. First up was the innocuous-sounding American Duties Act of 1764, more commonly known as the Sugar Act, which was seen by the British government as a revenue-raising scheme, while the colonists saw it as an attempt to halt their previously thriving but dependent on smuggling in order to avoid the previously levied import duty trade with the West Indies. The Sugar Act actually reduced the import duty, but made it more enforceable, and this led the colonies to start corresponding with one another in an attempt to band together to thwart the British attempts to actually get money out of the colonies. However, it would not be until the following year when the Stamp Act was passed to put duties on all paper, including official documents, newspapers, and even playing cards, that the colonists really got peeved. Washington's native Virginia led the charge in protesting the Stamp Act, with a young man by the name of Patrick Henry beginning to make a reputation for himself as a fiery orator by delivering a full-throated attack in the House of Burgesses against the British government's attempts to tax the colonies. Washington, however, was not filled with the same zealous fervor, at least not in public. Though he didn't join in the first round of attacks, we can find in his correspondence of that year a concurrence with their sentiments as he mentioned the British government's, quote, unconstitutional method of taxation. 
Likewise, the colonists would act in an extra-legal manner and call together a Congress of appointed delegates from nine colonies who met in New York City in the fall and drafted a Declaration of Rights and Grievances, the first such assembly and the first such joint declaration in the British North American colonies. However, this would not be the end of the attempts by the British government to wring revenue out of the purses of the Americans. The Townsend Acts were soon to follow in 1767, which again elicited an uproar from the colonies. The objection to these acts were not so much about the duties that were imposed, which, to be fair, they objected about those as well. Some of the main concerns stemmed from the Townsend Acts interfering in colonial government. One of the act's provisions suspended the New York Colonial Assembly until it agreed to appropriate funds that were demanded by the government as part of the Quartering Act of 1765. Another revived blank search warrants known as the Writs of Assistance. Another established vice admiralty courts and a board of customs commissioners to enforce the Sugar Act. Another stipulated that the duties collected would be used to pay colonial officials who had previously been paid by taxes levied by the assemblies elected by the colonists. Piece by piece, the colonists were feeling that power was being stripped from them and handed over to a government unelected by them in a city and a country that few of them had or would ever see. Washington, though concerned, was still more focused on his business prospects, and indeed, his biographer Ron Chernow notes that his attendance at the House of Burgesses was, quote, haphazard during this period. He continued to improve the productivity of Mount Vernon by building roads to link all of the five farms to the estate, and was ultimately able to bring 3,000 of the total 8,000 acres under cultivation. Beyond his farming and fishing operations, Washington initiated a weaving operation to produce, quote, textiles for general sale, and opened a grist mill, which he advertised to his neighbors, in addition to the services of his blacksmith operation. He may have left something to desire about his legislative talents, but, as noted by Chernow, he was getting much executive experience as, quote, he began to preside over something more akin to a small village than a mere plantation. He would soon have reason to put those burgeoning skills to use. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. 1769 would find Washington finally ready to put his neck on the line as word reached Virginia of proposals that the leaders of colonial protest of parliamentary policy be shipped back to England to face trial for treason. This was beyond the pale for the colonists, including Washington. In April of that year, he wrote to fellow Virginian George Mason that, quote, at a time when our lordly masters in Great Britain will be satisfied with nothing less than the deprivation of American freedom, it seems highly necessary that something should be done to avert the stroke and maintain the liberty which we have derived from our ancestors. But the manner of doing it, to answer the purpose effectually, is the point in question. 
that no man should scruple or hesitate a moment to use arms in defense of so valuable a blessing on which all the good and evil of life depends is clearly my opinion yet arms i would beg leave to add should be the last resource now it should be noted that arms was not spelled out in his letter rather appearing as a dash m s which was the eighteenth century way to talk smack about someone with an air of decorum washington and mason worked together to develop a plan for a non-importation association in the virginia colony as a protest and washington made his way to williamsburg for the next session of the general assembly where to the surprise of everyone he actually did something washington served on three standing committees in that session which ultimately would prove to be a short one as after the assembly passed the virginia resolves on may sixteenth asserting that only the assembly had the right to tax virginians the royal governor lord boatstort dismissed the assembly the next day one can imagine the my words and the devil you says that this move elicited washington joined other burgesses in the apollo room of the raleigh tavern afterwards to discuss the situation and washington made his proposal for the non-importation association to which the extra-legal group of dismissed burgesses agreed they would boycott all british goods that were subject to taxes levied by the parliament imported to the colonies as well as some other goods that though still untaxed would be an extra thumb in the nose of the british government it should be noted that washington and his contemporaries were not completely done with the british government yet though they still attended functions hosted by lord boatstort but they had concerns that needed to be addressed and pronto thinking that all with britain would work itself out washington's mind was still with the west he began planning a trip for 1770 with his friend dr james craik into the wilderness washington craik and three slaves set out with a pack horse in early october 1770 on their western journey this would be a major milestone in a lifelong friendship for the two not to give too much away but craik would be present and attending to his friend's medical needs at the time of washington's death in 1799 washington used the trip to learn more firsthand of the resources of the west as well as to quote negotiate leases with western farmers in which he retained timber and mineral rights washington realized that the potential future wealth that these lands would bring to folks in the eastern colonies was not to be found just on the surface but they would have to find their way around that pesky proclamation line in order to truly enjoy its benefits washington's personal life during this period also presented its share of problems Martha's daughter from her first marriage, Patsy, suffered from what would now be diagnosed as epilepsy and suffered her first full-scale seizure at the age of 12 while returning from the Halifax's plantation Belvoir in 1768, and the seizures would only increase in both intensity and regularity. As Martha Washington's biographer Patricia Brady noted, quote, Patsy's care became the center of Martha's life and ironically made it easier for her to send her son Jackie away to school jackie was a problem in and of himself he had been spoiled by his mother and stepfather though it seems that washington did try to provide a bit more of a firmer hand but would restrain himself for fear of running afoul of martha brady states quote, it's hard to imagine that any coercion could have turned him into a scholar after all he didn't need to study very hard when he came of age he would be a very rich man indeed jackie would court eleanor nellie calvert daughter of a wealthy maryland planter who jackie would ultimately propose to though washington and her father would convince them to wait until jackie had completed his studies at king's college before their marriage patsy's sudden death on june 19, 1773 would ultimately bring nellie into the washington fold 
though Patsy thankfully is described as having died peacefully, which is noted as unusual for someone suffering from epilepsy. Washington is noted by an observer as having at her bedside, quote, solemnly recited the prayers for the dying, while tears rolled down his cheeks and his voice was often broken by sobs. Nellie, who happened to be at Mount Vernon at the time of Patsy's passing, grew close to Martha during this period, and ultimately her and Jackie were allowed to be wed on February 3, 1774. Patsy's death through her estate inherited from her father, and that was now split between her brother and her stepfather, also allowed Washington to pay back some of his debt and afforded him a financial security that would allow him to act more boldly in the larger struggle to come. Before we go any further, I think I should note that, as we get deeper into the Revolution, there is no way in this context for me to be able to do justice to fully evaluate Washington's actions and leadership. I'm going to paint with broad strokes and hit the high notes in order to provide context for what it would mean for his presidency. But if you'd like to learn more about Washington the general, there are a number of books to choose from. Ron Chernow's Washington A Life is my go-to Washington biography, but Edward Lingle wrote a book focused on Washington's military career entitled General George Washington, A Military Life, and you can throw a stone and hit a book on the military actions in the Revolutionary War. I will post a list of potential sources in the show notes for this episode, but another recommended resource is Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast and the second series of episodes on the American Revolution. I just finished it up recently and think that it gives an approachable overview of the conflict, with Washington's role being discussed in detail. Outside of Virginia, events continued to ramp up towards a confrontation between the British and the colonists. In 1770, riots flared up in New York, as well as the more well-known one in Boston that came to be known as the Boston Massacre. Committees of correspondence began to be set up to spread information about, quote, the rights of the colonists and to communicate and publish to the world the infringements and violations thereof that have been or from time to time may be made. Parliament passed the Tea Act, and one of the most famous parties ever was held in Boston Harbor in December 1773, with 45 tons of tea being tossed into the waters. Then came the Boston Port Bill, which Washington learned about while in Williamsburg in 1774. This new bill shut down the Port of Boston until the East India Company was paid back for its tea, and just to be sure that the Bostonians understood just how not amused the British were. 3,000 soldiers were sent to the town to fortify the position of General Thomas Gage, the commander of British forces in North America. Though still maintaining social relations with the royal governor and his circle, Washington and his fellow Burgesses agreed to a boycott on tea and endorsed the proposal for an annual congress to be held with the other colonies in order to discuss what they could do to preserve their rights and liberties. Chernow notes this as the point that Virginian leaders, quote, reached the critical conclusion that an assault on one colony was an assault on all. Following a letter from Samuel Adams, Washington and his fellow legislators went further in approving Adams's proposal for a total ban on trade with Britain. By this point, Boat's Tort had been replaced as royal governor by Lord Dunmore, who had dismissed the Virginia House of Burgesses and called for new elections. So Washington used the opportunity to return to Mount Vernon, get a feel for how public opinion was running on the recent developments, then met with George Mason, with the two working together to draft a list of 24 resolutions, which became known as the Fairfax Resolves. The resolves called for an intercolonial congress that would guarantee the common defense of the colonies, and stressed that, quote, taxation and representation are in their nature inseparable, and that, without laws being made by representatives of the people, quote, 
The government must degenerate either into an absolute and despotic monarchy or a tyrannical aristocracy. One other resolve that is not often talked about proposed a suspension of the importation of slaves into Virginia and a call, quote, to see an entire stop forever put to such a wicked, cruel, and unnatural trade. A committee in Fairfax County, chaired by Washington, approved the resolves, and he had them in hand as he went off to Williamsburg for the reconvening of the colonial legislature in August. After the Burgesses developed a plan along the lines of the resolves, Washington, along with Peyton Randolph, Edmund Pendleton, Patrick Henry, and three others, were named as Virginia's delegates to the First Continental Congress. As described by John Miller in his book, Origins of the American Revolution, quote, The Continental Congress met in one of the most conservative of the seaport towns from which the revolutionary movement stemmed. Philadelphia patriots complained that there was more Toryism in Pennsylvania than in all the colonies combined. The character of the delegates who assembled in Philadelphia in September 1774 was likewise a good augury to the conservatives. The Continental Congress was composed of the ablest and wealthiest men in America. In the opinion of the radicals, however, there were far too few old Romans among the delegates. John Adams calculated that they were one-third Tories, another Whigs, and the rest mongrels, and he found tremors and time servers upon every side. Adams also critically noted of the Continental Congress that, quote, every man in it is a great man, an orator, a critic, a statesman, and therefore every man, upon every question, must show his oratory, his criticism, and his political abilities. All, it seems, except the man from Mount Vernon. As noted by Chernow, quote, increasingly a seasoned politician, gifted with a light touch, Colonel Washington seemed to know that self-promotion would only backfire among delegates who, by the nature of their revolt, possessed heightened fears of power-hungry leaders. The last thing they wanted was a general who pushed himself forward too overtly. As stories about Washington swirled around the Congress, he let them do the talking. Washington worked the First Continental Congress like a mature candidate. He turned ecumenical in his church-going habits, attending services at Presbyterian, Quaker, Roman Catholic, and a pair of Anglican churches. With the weather consistently fine and fair, he socialized assiduously in the evenings, dining out in 31 private homes in two months, and scarcely ever sticking to his lodgings. Washington showed a knack for expanding his network of acquaintances. John Furling describes this time in Washington's life as akin to a lengthy interview process. In agreement with Chernow, Furling notes that, quote, Nothing was more troubling to 18th century Americans than the prospect of entrusting any man with the awesome power that a military commander would possess. If it came to creating an army, and if Washington was made a general officer in that army, the congressman wanted to know whether he could be trusted. The first Congress was crucial for Washington's future, and he passed inspection, striking others as reserved, solemn, modest, prudent, decent, industrious, rugged, and possessed of an iron will. Moreover, unlike most of his contemporaries in Congress, he had not only experience in the military, but in leading military forces. Still, there wasn't any certainty that such experience would be needed after all. 
the delegates still felt that a full breach had not occurred and instead concluded their work by setting up a continental association that would manage a national boycott of imported goods from britain and sent word to each of the colonies that they should activate their militia on their own accord through local enforcement committees and start training them just in case they were needed with that the first continental congress ended in late october seventeen seventy four and the remaining delegates went home washington returned home to find a voluntary militia that had been organized in fairfax county and elected him as their commander he was soon joined by four other independent companies in fauquier prince william richmond and spotsylvania counties that also elected washington their commander in addition to his military activities he also attended the second virginia convention in march seventeen seventy five which put him on hand in williamsburg when the following month lord dunmore had the gunpowder from a local magazine emptied and transported to a man-of-war anchored off the coast of norfolk this act incited the colonists who threatened to storm the governor's palace an act that was prevented in part by washington's urging caution that caution however went to the wind when he returned to mount vernon and learned later that month of the skirmishes at lexington and concord massachusetts he wrote to his old friend george william fairfax that quote, the once happy and peaceful plains of america are either to be drenched with blood or inhabited by slaves sad alternative but can a virtuous man hesitate in his choice in order to make it strikingly clear to all what choice he had made washington arrived to the second continental congress in may seventeen seventy five wearing the uniform of the fairfax militia it seems that his congressional colleagues got the hint as after the vote was taken on june fourteenth to create quote, the american continental army from the rebel troops gathered in boston john adams of massachusetts stood and began to deliver a speech in support of washington to take command of the new army washington in either a sincere or a politically advantageous touch of modesty rushed from the room as adams continued his praise and formally nominated washington adams's decision to support washington along with the decision of others to go along with the nomination was due not only to washington's character as demonstrated and observed in his subtle backroom maneuverings in the two congresses but also an attempt to achieve a broader geographic base of support for what would become the revolution up to that point most of the action and energy for rebellion against britain had been in new england but having a virginian at the head of the army would help to make this a truly continental effort the vote was taken the next day and washington became the general of the continental army the following day he delivered his only known speech during his service in the two continental congresses to date in which as was the habit of the day he declared his own feeling that he was unfit for the task but quote, as the congress desire it i will enter upon the momentous duty and give every power i possess in their service and for the support of the glorious cause best of all he announced in the speech that he would not take a salary and would only seek compensation for his expenses they had little way of knowing it then but the soon-to-be-often cash-strapped congress would need every bit of currency they could get washington would make his preparations including drafting a letter to martha informing her of the appointment martha was still suffering emotionally from the loss of her daughter so it seems that washington hesitated in writing to her as the letter that went to her is dated three days after his appointment he wrote to his wife that quote, i shall feel no pain from the toil or the danger of the campaign my unhappiness will flow from the uneasiness i know you will feel at being left alone he wrote that same day to jackie that quote, 
My great concern upon this occasion is the thought of leaving your mother under the uneasiness which I know this affair will throw her into. I therefore hope, expect, and indeed have no doubt of your using every means in your power to keep her in spirits. Then wrote the next day to his brother Jack Washington about his fear that his absence and the danger of his assuming command of the Continental Army would be, quote, a cutting stroke upon Martha. Still, he felt his work to be important and could not think of turning from the responsibility, even for Martha. As Washington put his affairs in order, Congress got to work appointing generals to serve under him. As with Washington, geographic and political concerns were taken into consideration, but the choices were a mixed bag. Washington recommended both Horatio Gates and Charles Lee to fill two of the five generalships and would have reason to regret both before the war was over. After this work was done, Washington made his way to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where, on July 2nd, he assumed command of his new army. Okay, so I hope you're all ready. This is likely to be the quickest telling of the Revolutionary War ever, but again, with a focus on how it relates to Washington's presidency. Here we go. Though Washington on paper took command of an army, it wasn't so much of an army in reality as a ragtag band of untrained civilians full of bravado but little else. He found the camp to be in absolute shambles and immediately went to work on correcting everything that he saw that was wrong, down to the smallest detail. He even issued orders to his officers about the personal hygiene of the soldiers and tending to latrines. The devil was in the details, and Washington was determined to attend to some of the details that he knew from his experience and reading could decimate armies, especially when it came to smallpox. He made sure to have any who exhibited signs of smallpox quarantined, and in January 1777 ordered Dr. William Shippen to initiate a program to inoculate every soldier in his army that had never had smallpox. The concept of inoculation was still relatively new, having been introduced in colonial America only 50 years prior, and could still be an unpleasant experience for the patient, though the risk of death from a smallpox inoculation was low. Though there's no way to tell for certain, it is quite likely that these and other preventative measures, this attention to detail, was part of what kept the army going when, all things being equal, another army may have fallen apart. Meanwhile, Washington had to learn to manage the expectations of the public and the expectations of Congress. As noted by Chernow, Washington, quote, couldn't defend his own performance without citing the deficiencies of men, munitions, and supplies, but that would alert the enemy to his weaknesses. He had to swallow his doubts and appear the picture of confidence, making him more tight-lipped in his public pronouncements, if more vehement in private. For the rest of his life, Washington remained the prisoner of roles that forced him into secrecy and evasion, accentuating an already reticent personality. His reserve was further reinforced by a view of military leadership that frowned on camaraderie. Washington's officers admired him, but with the slightest touch of fear. It would take time for Washington to build what he would come to refer to as his military family of trusted advisors and aides. As he began to work with the army in Cambridge, two officers stood out in Washington's eye, Nathaniel Green of Rhode Island and Henry Knox of Massachusetts. Though neither came from a military background, Washington saw potential in both that he helped cultivate, and Knox would have the first opportunity to shine. It would be Knox who would be sent out and would return in January 1776 after two months with, quote, heavy weapons carted 300 miles from Fort Ticonderoga. Incredibly, Knox had taken almost 60 mortars and cannon 
weighing about 120,000 pounds, and mounted them on 42 giant sleds. Through thickening December snow, teams of oxen had hauled this ponderous artillery up and down mountain passes, across frozen rivers, and down village lanes, as spectators gaped in wonder. This artillery would prove crucial to the operation in March, which forced the British to abandon Boston and would earn Washington the first of relatively few victories in the war. One more critical member of his military family had arrived on December 11th. Martha Washington, accompanied by Jack and Nellie Custis, as well as Washington's nephew, George Washington Lewis, had come to Cambridge. Patricia Brady would describe Martha's arrival as, quote, allowing him, Washington, freedom from domestic details to concentrate on his military responsibility. Her deep devotion to her children and other family members paled before the burning intensity of her love for George Washington. He accepted her adoration without much thought. It was the atmosphere in which he lived and breathed, where he was most himself. She was at his side and on his side, sympathizing and supporting him through depression, failure, disloyalty, and anxiety about the future. With her, he needn't pretend to be perfect. Washington's attentions then turned to New York, which he felt a likely next target. In early 1776, he had sent General Charles Lee ahead to scout out the area and then gave him permission to work on the defenses for the city before Washington came along with the colonial army following the British evacuation of Boston. It was in New York that the army faced its first large bout of smallpox. As Martha had not been inoculated, Washington took her to Philadelphia, where she allowed herself to submit to the procedure and spent three weeks in recovery while Washington consulted with Congress. Congress made it clear to the commander that it considered holding New York City a top priority. The only problem with that is that, as noted by Chernow, quote, the same qualities that made New York a majestic seaport turned it into a military nightmare for defenders. There was hardly a spit of land that couldn't be surrounded and thoroughly shelled by British ships. Washington, however, would give it the old College of Hard Knocks try. One can only imagine how he and his troops felt when, in early July, a fleet of 110 warships and transport boats showed up in New York Harbor. As a private described it, quote, I declare that I thought all of London was afloat. However, their spirits were temporarily lifted a few days later when a copy of the Declaration of Independence arrived. Washington had it read aloud, and his men expressed their, quote, hearty assent and, quote, warmest approbation. This would not save New York, however. The British first took Long Island in late August, and, though suffering heavy losses, Washington managed to evacuate over 9,000 troops, unbeknownst to the British, until it was too late to link up with the remainder of his troops on Manhattan Island. Initially, Washington and his council thought that they could hold Manhattan, but quickly realized the folly of that, and Washington transferred his headquarters to Harlem Heights in order to be ready for the inevitable. It came as night turned into day on September 15, 1776. The British crossed over into Lower Manhattan and started making their way up the island. By mid-October, Washington was forced to evacuate his troops into the upstate. The one good thing to come out of this embarrassing retreat, besides, of course, avoiding the complete and utter destruction of the Continental Army, which could have happened at numerous points had British General Howe been a bit more proactive, was that Washington noticed a young artillery captain who was at work superintending the construction of earthworks at Harlem Heights while the Army held out there. This young man was a recent immigrant to New York from the Caribbean named Alexander Hamilton. In case you didn't already know, 
We'll be discussing Alexander Hamilton much more in future episodes. In order to keep us from getting too far off track, I'm going to do a mini-episode on Hamilton to share with you how he made his way from the Caribbean to catch the eye of General Washington. For now, just know that he and the rest of the Continental Army followed Washington into New Jersey, where the majority of Washington's military activity for the rest of the war would occur. For Washington, the military activity could not be confined to the battlefield. Though he had engaged and developed existing intelligence operations during his time in New England, and had had limited success in establishing an intelligence operation during his brief time in New York, after the Army's movement into New Jersey, Washington realized that getting intelligence out of New York City, where the British had set up their Continental headquarters, would be crucial. Thus was established a network known as the Culper Ring, which remained an active force in gathering strategic intelligence out of the New York area until the end of the war. Likewise, Nathaniel Green, during his time in Washington's military family, was able to observe his process of establishing spy networks and utilizing strategic intelligence. Thus, when he ultimately went south to take control of the Southern Department, Green was able to implement similar intelligence gathering operations with much success. Even with good intelligence, operations in the middle colonies were a mixed bag for Washington. Though Congress, realizing the vulnerability of Philadelphia, left town for Baltimore, the British under General Howe decided to call off his campaign for the season at Trenton, New Jersey, and instead returned to New York City to make his winter headquarters. Washington, however, wasn't ready to end military operations just yet. Christmas Day 1776 would see Washington and his forces crossing the Delaware River and launching a successful attack on the Hessian forces at Trenton in the early morning. This was, of course, the famous crossing forever immortalized in painting form. However, even more miraculous than that are the actions of Washington on December 30th. Knowing that a sizable number of his forces, 200 in number, were set to have their enlistments expire at the end of the year, Washington made an appeal to them from atop a horse. He is quoted as saying, My brave fellows, you have done all I asked you to do, and more than could be reasonably expected. But your country is at stake your wives, your houses, and all that you hold dear. If you will consent to stay one month longer, you will render that service to the cause of liberty and to your country, which you probably can never do under any other circumstances. All 200 men remained, though, as Chernow noted of the next six weeks, quote, half would perish from combat wounds or illness. They remained out of loyalty to an ideal and to a man who, quote, was treating them not as commoners, but as tried-and-true gentlemen, as he only required their word, rather than a paper reenlistment agreement, as proof that they would stay. Thus, they were able to gain a victory against the British at Princeton in early January. That would, unfortunately, prove to be the high point of Washington's campaign in the region. After he took his army into winter quarters in Morristown, New Jersey, he focused in more on his spy operations and dealing with Congress. It was in January of 1777 that Washington took Hamilton in as his aide-de-camp and chief secretary in order to help him manage his correspondence. During this time, Hamilton would not just take dictation, but rather was expected to independently make a draft response to correspondence sent to Washington by Congress, the generals under Washington's command, and any other folks who might have a reason to write to the general, with Hamilton responding in such a way as Washington himself would respond if he had the time. These drafts would pass before Washington's eye, and Washington may provide some guiding instructions or thoughts on certain responses, 
but Hamilton was given rather free reign to speak for Washington. This will not be the last time that Hamilton is given this freedom, so take note, dear listener. July 31, 1777, would introduce Washington to the Marquis de Lafayette, who was described by Chernow as follows, quote, because Washington was childless and drew close to several aides, many biographers have been tempted to turn them into surrogate sons, but the only one who closely matched this description was the Marquis de Lafayette, who eagerly embraced the role. Lafayette arrived at the time that many French officers were coming over, seeking paid positions and our professional glory with little credentials. Though Lafayette had little credit to his name besides his title, he did have a letter of recommendation from Benjamin Franklin, and Washington obviously saw something in him as he had with other people who, on paper, were unskilled. Because of Washington's confidence, the Marquis would come to play a key role in American and European history. From here, we're going to commit a cardinal sin of anyone interested in the Revolutionary War and do a quick fast-forward. The British took over Philadelphia. Valley Forge happened. Monmouth Courthouse happened. There is so much that can be said about those events, but honestly, I don't think they tell us much about what prepared Washington for the presidency besides persistence. Monmouth Courthouse did give Washington a lesson in disappointment. Washington had consistently placed confidence in Charles Lee's abilities as commander, though Lee had given little indication to justify such confidence. At Monmouth, Washington gave Lee authority to lead the offensive, but what Washington got in return was a half-hearted attempt that Lee allowed to become a complete rout. Washington snapped into attention and rode to first confront Lee face-to-face and then headed to the front to try and rally troops. As described by Chernow, quote, Commanding as always on horseback, he succeeded in stemming the panic through pure will. When he asked the men if they would fight, they loudly responded with three lusty cheers. A novel occurrence in Washington's experience, suggesting the deep affection he inspired after the shared sacrifice at Valley Forge. The battle was indecisive, but this would not be the last time that Washington would be infuriated by someone who he had trusted, ultimately betraying that trust. Indeed, this was recounted as one of the few instances that people saw Washington lose his temper with another general, asserting that he cursely, quote, till the leaves shook on the tree. The trees would settle, though, after Yorktown. The victory at Yorktown, rather than being a planned operation, just sort of happened and fell into Washington's lap. After the Battle of Monmouth, the British forces in the north remained focused in New York City, while they diverted forces under General Charles Lord Cornwallis to launch a southern campaign that they felt could more easily break off those colonies from the rebellious Confederation, then move back up the eastern seaboard and take the rest. The plan had met with some success, and Cornwallis made it up to Virginia, where he linked up with the now British General Benedict Arnold in May 1781 and the two made the rounds in the late spring and early summer of that year in southeastern Virginia, going all the way up to Charlottesville, where they nearly captured Thomas Jefferson, an incident we'll learn about in further detail in his pre-presidency episode. However, it was at this point that Cornwallis made a critical error. Despite a warning by Arnold to make his base up the James River, possibly at Richmond, Cornwallis instead took his forces down, first to Williamsburg, and then to a little place known as Yorktown. Up until this point, Washington had been focused and dead set on an attack on New York City and was awaiting a French fleet to provide naval support. He had instead sent first Lafayette in February in pursuit of Arnold. Then, as events in Virginia escalated, Washington sent General Anthony Wayne to provide support. Unbeknownst to any of them, 
The French fleet under Admiral de Grasse, which Washington had wanted for New York, was instead headed to Chesapeake Bay, which Washington learned on August 14th. Two days later, he learned from Lafayette that Cornwallis had retreated to Yorktown. Washington had earlier in the war identified Yorktown as a place that military forces could be easily trapped, so he knew the snare that Cornwallis had unintentionally placed himself in. With the French naval forces covering the bay and a large military force on the land laying siege, Cornwallis would be pinned. Washington quickly made orders for the main part of his force to start heading down to reinforce Lafayette and Wayne, but they also had to fool the British in New York City into thinking that they weren't going anywhere. Through the use of a stage camp on the west bank of the Hudson River and American boats laying down pontoons in the waters around New York City, a seeming first step in a naval assault, it wasn't until it was too late to rush to Cornwallis's aid that British General Henry Clinton learned that Washington's forces were en route to Virginia. Cornwallis and his forces held out for a bit, waiting for relief that would never come, until finally a white flag flew over the British ramparts on the morning of October 17, 1781. That same day, ironically, General Clinton and a fleet of 6,000 troops departed from New York to come to Cornwallis's assistance. Though they had no way of knowing that this would be the deciding battle, the Americans in this victory had broken the British resolve for war, and peace and an assured independence would not be long in coming. It would not be a victory for all, though. Washington's stepson, Jack Custis, had been serving in the American forces during the siege at Yorktown and contracted a, quote, camp fever, which suspected to have been typhus. Washington made sure that he was tended to, and a call for Martha and Jack's wife, Nellie. Together, they watched Jackie die on November 5, 1781. Before we move into the post-war years, the one other aspect of Washington's time as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army that should not be overlooked is the level of support that he built for himself over time. Though he had enjoyed strong support early on, Washington spent a good portion of his time during the war facing criticism from Congress for not acting more decisively and engaging the British with more zeal. He also had to face dissension in the ranks. Though not as organized of an effort as it is made to sound, the so-called Conway Cabal of Generals Horatio Gates, Thomas Mifflin, and Thomas Conway attempted to convince Congress to remove Washington as head of the army in favor of Charles Lee. When Congress considered promoting Conway to Major General over other officers, a move that Washington feared would lead to his losing more skilled and trustworthy commanders, he warned that, quote, it will be impossible for me to be of any further service, and let Conway talk himself into being sidelined in early 1778 as Washington successfully struggled to hold the army together at Valley Forge. As John Furling asserts, quote, Washington had been lauded for his successes in Boston and in the Trenton-Princeton campaign, but Valley Forge was the time of his transfiguration. As never before, Washington came to be seen as the truly heroic figure. He was exalted by the President of Congress, among others, as the noble warrior who had battled not only a strong, resilient enemy, but infant America's economic and organizational malaise. Then Lee's performance at Monmouth removed him as a possible rival to Washington. Even before the end of the war, Washington's birthday was being publicly celebrated, and he was being called the, quote, father of his country. His legend would only grow after he resigned his command of his own accord on December 23, 1783. To be fair, 
there was a ton of pomp and circumstance, and it was a very long goodbye that began on November 2nd with his farewell address to the armies of the United States message sent out to the forces under his command. There had been dinners and parades, greetings by dignitaries and crowds from New York to Annapolis, Maryland. Finally, finally, on Christmas Eve, Washington, the citizen, returned to his family at Mount Vernon. Though he had written to Baron von Steuben what he thought was his, quote, last letter I shall ever write while I continue in the service of my country, little could he have imagined that his country was not done with him quite yet. This may seem rather anticlimactic, but I'm going to tell you right now that I'm not going to talk about the Constitutional Convention, which I'm expecting to cover in more detail when we get to Madison's pre-presidency, as he was more critical to the actual wheelings and dealings that crafted the document. As many of you know, Washington, though reluctantly at first, finally agreed to serve as the president of the Constitutional Convention, and his support of that document lent it an air of authority and confidence that led to ratification. Why, then, was he reluctant to serve when called? As noted by Edward Larson, quote, He had never been happier than during the past few years of honored retirement, and he had rarely been healthier. He had much to gain, but more to lose by him returning to the public stage. So did the country. Washington, it seems, honestly intended to retire and had his mind set on other affairs. Martha had requested, and Jackie's widow Nellie had agreed upon her remarriage, to have the Washingtons look after Martha's grandchildren, little Nellie and Washington Custis. Nellie and Washi would become to the Washingtons like their own children, with Martha doting on Washi, while Nellie became the apple in the general's eye. Beyond family, Washington also had business in mind. Nine months after resigning his commission, on September 1, 1784, Washington and his friend, Dr. James Craik, who had accompanied him on his earlier trip in 1770, set out from Mount Vernon westward, bound on a trip to tour his property holdings in the West. At this point, Washington was 52. He was no longer the young man who had set out to tell off the French at the command of King George, and as he had seen in numerous examples in his life, Washington men were not long-lived. As it was, he was a husband, a veteran, a planter, and a national leader. He owned all of the strengths that those roles afforded, as well as the responsibility and problems of each. He intended to spend the remainder of his days enjoying the first three roles, and the dignity and gravitas of a retired leader, but he kept being drawn back into the contradictions of his public service. He was a man who had fought for the freedom of some while holding other people in bondage. He was a proponent of democracy, who would have reason to question the ability of the people to govern themselves without a guiding hand. Most importantly in terms of his future, he was a retiree who just couldn't seem to quit working. Next time, Washington will take office as the first president of the United States, and will explore the difficult first few months of his presidency. As we enter into the presidency, I wanted to invite listeners to submit questions as they come to you. I'm planning an episode devoted to answering listener questions at the end of the series of Washington episodes, so please send in any questions you may have, as well as any general comments or suggestions, to Presidency's Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or reach out to me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, or on Twitter at presidencies89. Sources used for this episode, as well as supplementary material, can be found at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U, B-R-R-Y dot com.
Past episodes can be found on the blog, as well as on iTunes or Stitcher, if you're not listening from one of those already. As always, thank you so much for listening, and take care until next time, friends. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.